0: I coach a lot of students how to drink, actually. (laughs) Really? uh, Oh, yeah.
1: I would have taken that class in college, How how to Drink 101 with Jersey Gregory.
0: Yeah, I I, I coach a lot of students uh, from different universities (laughs) on Zoom and in person. And drinking, you know, they simply communicated to me over and over. We will drink, right? And you helped me how to... I have to make it happen so it is conscious, right? It is not unconscious.
1: What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Oxoro podcast. And if you're listening to this or seeing this on YouTube, then you are on the public feed. This means you don't have access to the full video versions of the Oxoro podcast, and you aren't getting bonus episodes of my other podcast, The Ox, on topics like Bruce Lee, Bitcoin, the COVID lab leak, and more. In exchange for your hard-earned or inherited money, we take both. No discrimination here. You'll get two bonus episodes per month of The Ox, which ends up being three plus hours of premium podcast content. The full video version of every episode of The Oxoro Podcast so you don't have to watch a thumbnail on YouTube. Subscriber only solo episodes, raw notes and research, bonus writings, access to all premium archived episodes and more. Become a premium member today by going to augzoro.supercast.tech so you don't have to hear any more of these annoying-ass pitches now or in the middle of an episode. And trust me, they only get more annoying. Pitches are for bitches. Go to augzoro.supercast.tech today to support quality content from independent creators. Link can also be found in the episode notes. I love you guys. Enjoy the show. This time, I sit down with Jersey Gregoric. Jersey is the author of The Happy Body, a mindful exercise program that helps you break free from bad habits and excel. As a competitive weightlifter, Jersey has won four weightlifting championships and established one world record. In 1986, he and his wife, Aniela, came to the United States from Poland as political refugees during the Solidarity Movement. Jersey is funny, insightful, and knows what it means to suffer. More than anything else, he helps people strengthen their mind along with their body and emphasizes the importance of enjoyment and relaxation as part of any exercise regimen. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jersey and walked away from it feeling lighter and more grateful. I hope this conversation does something similar for you, as well as provide insights into fitness, suffering, and living a more fulfilling life. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Jersey Gregoric. Okay, Jersey. So I wasn't planning on starting with this, but I think it could be interesting. So you're coming off of 10 days of having your ears clogged (laughs) after swimming. And I know for me, when I go through a, a period of time of some sort of suffering, whether it's something small or something bigger, I usually come out with maybe uh, some insight into meaning about life or, or, or suffering or gratefulness for something that I wasn't expected. Is there any meaning, anything meaningful or, or anything interesting to say about having your ears clogged for 10 days and then being relieved of that clogging?
0: I guess, you know, we try to do anything on our own and uh, see if it works. And uh, maybe the meaning only is that we don't have to do it just right away when it happens. <laughs> we need to go to a doctor and, and uh, uh, to a professional and just fix it. I was going 10 days uh, uh, with clogged ears and couldn't hear much uh, what my wife was talking to me <laughs> in a car. And she had to <laughs> tell me three times. And uh, I tried Almost anything, you know. Uh, I Google and try to find the ways and and rinse my ear and and use special ointments and peroxide and even uh, garlic. All the, the things that I I could <laughs> use, and I was successful at a certain point that my ear unclog for about maybe half an hour and then clocked again. So eventually, I got really enough of that and went to my friend who is a doctor and then she worked on it maybe 10 minutes and it was done. So think about it. Like yeah. 10 days, I was, I was uh, going on with this uh, uh, clogged ears and, and it's not suffering. It's just, you know, like uh, irritated.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know what it is about going to the doctor where I will try absolutely everything. I will try to be my own doctor. I will do absurd things that I see on Reddit just to see if they'll work before I go to the doctor. Whereas sometimes if I went to the doctor right away, it may have been solved earlier. So I I, I don't know what that is where maybe it's a societal thing or whatever. It's like you want to figure out shit without help of other people.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of fitness a little bit. Like we, we think that we know about exercise. We know, uh, how to eat. And the best one is we know how to write. So, uh, I, we were studying creative writing at Vermont and then went to Poland and my, uh, Anila told her brother that she's studying creative writing. And then he looked at her and said, why do you study how to write? You don't know how to write.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, it, it seems it seems like such an easy thing to do, how to write, and there, yet it's so complicated. It can be complicated. It's kind of
0: normal thing. You know how to write, but you don't know how to uh, write creatively, right? Mm-hmm. It's a different story to to write uh, something on a page and and write creatively.
1: So speaking speaking of Poland. I know that you've said in the past the the first time you were faced with unconditional love, and this is what I planned on on starting with. The first time you were faced with unconditional love was in a friendship with a man named Jerzy Popolusko.
0: Yeah, Papalusko.
1: Yeah. Papalusko, and he was he was a priest in in Poland, and he was a an instrumental part of the Solidarity movement. So so, how did you and Jersey meet? And what was it about your time with Jersey that made you feel unconditional love for the first time?
0: So I started the Fire Protection uh, Engineering Academy in Warsaw, Uh, so there were uh, 400 students every year as a hundred students. And uh, during my fourth year, uh, it was 1981, and it was uh, October. There was a lot of struggles between uh solidarity and the government so the government uh tried to change the law for the fire department in Poland and the law was that the uh, fire department couldn't be used to against the uh marching uh, of people with strikes or, or uh, any mm-hmm. demonstrations they couldn't use the fire engines pouring water or uh, something like that. So they wanted to change it, and they wanted to make the academy paramilitary, so that would let them, let's say, to color water, spray on demonstrators, and then uh, find them on streets and arrest them. So uh, we uh, began strike because of that. And then uh, the strike was uh, in Warsaw, jolie Bush and and Jerzy uh, Popeluszko uh, was uh, one of the uh, priests in the region of the, where uh, Warsaw where the academy was. Mm-hmm. When we were on strike, it was really, really hard to keep independence. And then uh, so we asked for help. Solidarity came and still uh, factory workers from Warsaw came and surrounded the school so police would not enter the academy, or they would be watching and and be and see what happens there. Right then, inside it was very stressful, very uh, very difficult to handle, and people were very frightened. So we asked also for spiritual support, and then uh, so Jersey came to give some sermons, and and then I was. Uh, a lot involved in the committee or the strike in this in the in the making decisions. And uh didn't sleep, didn't uh, eat anything, just lived out of cigarettes and coffee for days. Yeah. So when Jersey came, he delivered sermons and and I engaged with him and I talked to him. And then uh such uh, what strike me is this ultimate goodness that person had that it was just amazing. The goodness for for people, the goodness for uh the planet, the goodness, just like an amazing thing. It was not something inside his mind that was compromised. It was very pure. Mm-hmm. And not only him, but there was also Sever Niborsky, who's uh, one of the leaders of the of the uh, Solidarity. And Weyhert was uh, one of the uh, professors from MIT, kind of MIT uh, in Warsaw. And, you know, these people had something that I've never seen, which I thought is something that uh, we pretend to be. <laughs> so I thought yeah. that we pretend to be people that love everybody, that we not really love some more than others <laughs> and we are not yeah. selecting. I saw so, uh, genuine, really love and, and concerned about everybody around. Not only really those that you fight together, but also those who are fighting against. And that's what Jersey had, right? It's amazing.
1: Jersey came in when the, the Fire Academy was on strike and you were... Yeah. You were in the fire department in Poland and were you allowed to leave when the the department was uh, was on strike? You said the police were surrounding it. What was that situation like?
0: Yeah, we we were on strike means like we took over the building. Okay. And the people who surrounded the building were thousands of people that were standing Mm -hmm. around the building for 10 days in the rain and kind of uh, snow and cold was uh, November. It was November and um, uh, December 2nd attack us. So it's winter in Poland and mm-hmm. uh, we didn't have enough food. So people uh, would bring us food also. And there was 10 days like that. Uh, then also the solidarity derailed the tramways around. So mm-hmm. when they derailed then, uh, police forces couldn't, uh, drive through. It was, uh, um, it was a
1: battle. What's up guys. Like I said, there will be annoying interruptions on the Ozoro public feed in an attempt to convince you to subscribe to Augsoro premium for about five bucks a month. If you sign up for the year, you can get me to shut the fuck up with these ads and also gain access to bonus episodes and the full video version of the Ozoro podcast. In my best attempt to annoy you, I will now read the alphabet, followed by a preview of one of our premium bonus episodes. Here we go. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, y z and now a preview of a bonus episode only found on auxoro premium that's Tech. link in the podcast description i could see someone like Avicii being really easily swayed to continue to do the show maybe his friends are even guilt tripping him into it or, or they're trying to make Things. Well, that's what they were doing in the documentary. Yeah, they're trying to make things seem better than they actually are. With like, oh, were not, his, y- you you know, know, his friends
3: financial were? As, like, or, or were they financially mm-hmm. compensated? Were they rewarded by making him go more? Yeah, well, it was all people that worked for him, or he probably had his friends just mm-hmm. like come on the tour. I'm sure they were all making money with yeah. him. But yeah, know, a lot the, of his um, friends worked with him. Yeah, but yeah, the whole thing. I mean, that was just really sad. I'm sure that happens all the time because he, he asked that he was literally asking them to stop and saying he had like mental health issues and he had like pancreatitis too. Like, yeah, me, I think. And he just, uh, drink like, from what, drinking they, in the documentary. They just showed his friends keep saying like, no, no, keep going because they, they were just all pushing him to keep performing. And that could have led to him like dying too, which is, yeah, sad. if
1: you're making say, let's say you're making 100K a hundred K show and your friends. You're, when you go to when you go to managers, when you talk about people that are handling your travel, whatever it is, your friends are making thousands of dollars a show off of you, and they don't have the best intentions. You may bring medical problems or, or things to their attention. And they're like, oh, like you're throwing up blood. It's not that big of a deal. Or uh, it's probably just like a stomach ache or something with the the pancreatitis. And then you go on for longer and longer and longer. And then you end up in the hospital with really bad health problems.
3: Well, I think that's a danger from people around you making a percentage of whatever you make. Like they're not working for themselves. They're working like the more money that person, that celebrity makes and the more money they make. So they're just going (laughs) to push that for unless they're. I mean, even family sometimes like screws you like a game coach. people are, had that story yeah. about his brother, but like, oh, yeah. yeah, besides your family, for the most part, everyone's probably just going to push you to make more and more money. So they make
1: more and more money. And now back to the episode. And so Jersey came in priest Jersey, father Jersey. Is that, is that how people right. would refer? Yeah. yeah just cause if, uh, you share the same first name. If anyone's confused with Jersey, Jersey. So so right. Father Jersey came in when the fire department was on strike. You didn't have access to, to food and, and supplies and people were giving, bringing things to you when you were on strike, when it was hard to get with everything going on in Poland. And Jersey came in and he was like a, a, a force of love and light that you'd never really felt before? Like, what, what was he saying specifically? Any, anything that stood out in his sermons that he was giving to you at the fire department?
0: It was very calming, you know. He uh, brought us to the present moment and calmed us down with his words. And his words were very clear that everything will pass and, and that we do the right thing and everything will be okay and uh, then uh, every time when the sermons was on that it helped I you know uh, students to come down because uh, the uh, the government was doing everything to break people inside so they would come out and break the strike leave the strike and make uh, us weaker so uh, there were situations like that too so uh, the the communist government would would do anything to break the strike. So it was important to calm down the students. It was important to stay uh, on strike and keep uh, uh, keep resisting. You know what was uh, what was happening around. So the law could be on our side, but eventually, eventually was not. They attack us uh, by force and.
1: They took us out. Yeah. And just so people know that are listening who aren't familiar with the Solidarity Movement, it was an anti-communist social movement in Poland. It had over 9 million members and it's considered to be instrumental in the fall of communism as a whole during that time. And so you, you had fled Poland in 1985, but before that, you were a firefighter. You were also seeing things... On the ground, it sounds like once the the strike came to a close what were you what were you seeing on a daily basis? What was it like during that time when you were still in Poland before the the solidarity movement went underground
0: so solidarity was legal eighteen eighty one that was amazing time in Poland. It was a time when when people were very happy people were happy everywhere they they would talk. Strangers would talk to each other, and that was a really hope in Poland, and a very clear hope that something is something is good and something is strong as well. That uh, maybe we'll be able to get rid of the, you know, Soviets and and then uh, we'll be on our own. Well, it didn't happen in eighty one, December 13, After they took us down. December 2nd, they attack us by force, took us out, and in December 13, government of Poland attacked Solidarity. And Solidarity went underground because of that. So it was a war, Jaruzelski War. Uh, It was a war in Poland, uh, 1981, December 13, until 89, really underground. Solidarity was underground until 89. And in 88, Nine, as you know, uh, Solidarity came from under the ground to the government and show uh, the world how to be free. And then the Berlin Wall collapsed, and and then um, other countries freed themselves, like Ukraine and Estonia and and Lithuania and other countries. Uh, Belarus uh, became free because of it. So Solidarity was this. Uh, a key, the, the beginning of collapse of civilization. And that civilization is uh, uh, was very uh, progressive, very, very powerful. And in Poland, it was from 1944 until 1989. It was horrible time. It was not different than to be uh, a slave in Poland to you didn't have a choice you had to obey and if you didn't uh you could be taken uh to the police uh, tortured and nobody uh, would resist or would say anything for you
1: It it was kind of like keep your head down don't say anything and if if someone outed you as supporting the solidarity movement they they would make an example out of you
0: Well, not only that, uh, you also have to learn how to uh, obey and how to show the obedience. So, uh, you know, they were vicious uh, uh, bosses. Uh, It means that uh, they were bullied, they were bullies to the extreme. So they would like to see if you obey and if you really obey. <laughs> so yeah. if you are not a resistance fighter, right? So you need to somehow be Machiavelli inside. Yeah, you need to, like inside, yeah? we need to show yeah. the uh, obedience and and also to survive because you, if you didn't you could be you could die that day. So yeah. it was in some in- instances was a um, horrible uh way of living but we had to adapt. We have to find the way, right? In this singular uh, way of life.
1: What are some of the things they would do to test your obedience? You said some people would obey, and then they'd want to find out. Okay, does this person really? Is this person really on board with the government? What are some of the things that they would do to to break people and make sure that they would fall in line?
0: Well, uh, we had, you know, we we still didn't obey, right? So completely, Mm -hmm. so we would resist, and we would resist in and individually resist, And also we were uh, taken to the police and tortured. And then we uh, had, you know, strikes and then we had demonstrations. And then we had demonstrations, 73 and then 53 and, and 56. And then, uh, then 78 and we fought, you know, we didn't really completely uh, give up, but. Mm -hmm. On the level of this, a personal level, when people really work somewhere and you just had a boss somewhere in this small village or small city, these communists that were in power, they really enjoy to see obedience of of others to push them to that level, to uh, break their spirit. So I'm talking about personal level only. But on the national level, you know uh, the spirit never has been never been broken because uh, uh that that's you know uh i remember it was i watched i watched this movie about uh the the Warsaw uprising that happened in 44 uh, in poland and then uh the Warsaw uprising, Warsaw uprising it was clear that that would be a suicide and then the Russian army, and the Stalin that was at that time the leader of the Soviet Union, he clearly wanted to make Poland uh, obedient and and part of the Soviet empire. Mm -hmm. And there was London. London was the Polish government of the underground, and that Polish government uh, gave orders to the Underground in Warsaw, not to do appraisal, <laughs> so the appraisal leaders they said that they had to do the strike right because if they don't, they would give in and they will be Sovietized eventually mm-hmm. in a way, it was suicide, but there is no other way, so well, almost two hundred thousand people died because of it, but it could be that uh, because of that, the power stayed with people from 44 until 89, that mm-hmm. Holland simply never gave in. And because of that, was able to crush that whole empire in 89, give mm-hmm. the the beginning yeah. of the crash. So if you show signs of giving in, then you can be corrupted. and you can be broken. But if you don't, then even though you die, others can can live and be free because of that. And that's what happened during the, during 44. And then, and because of, could be because of that, we had some energy, even though we're born, you know, after that, right? But the energy of that stayed with us so we kept fighting and kept fighting until 89 when we took over the government i don't know what
1: it's like to be under a, a communist regime or or the threat of communism or anything even close to that cuz I, I was born in the us i was born in new york in the early 90s and i've always been in the united states i've i've always been living here my whole life and i can't imagine what it's like to live under that threat of death and violence and an entire government wanting people to submit and, and wanting to break people and take everything you have. Is there anything meaningful or, or something that could communicate the the horrors of what you experienced in Poland? Because there are some people that point to, there's some people in the United States and people in government that point to socialist or communist regimes as things we should admire or, or the the positive aspects of some of those those governments without recognizing the, the negatives and the violence and the death? Is there anything you could say that could communicate what it's like at, on a general level of what it's like to truly live under the threat of communism?
0: Well, communism is kind of like kingdom, right? Maybe it's even worse than kingdom. So a king or Caesar could kill anybody that wanted and nothing could be done to him, right? So it's a really uh, totalitarian state, kingdom. Communism is this totalitarian state. At the beginning, they, I think that they thought uh, good, right? They thought about being equal and have really good ideas. But that leaves us with the government that is totalitarian. There is no really... Uh, and the other people that rule, start ruling this, they can do whatever they want. That leads to whatever we want. It becomes dark at a certain point. And at a certain point, you start forcing people and they obey and you force them more and bully them more and then obey. And then you learn that the only way to keep them that way is uh, using fear. Mm-hmm. So to stay uh, calm and they stay obedient. And uh, we know today that these totalitarian uh, states of uh, countries that are communistic are very scary for people uh, to live inside. And this totalitarian state is not democracy, right? So you don't have this other side to show yeah. th- this side, that this side is doing something wrong. So there is no other side. There's only one power. And in that one power, the government can do whatever it wants. Mm -hmm. It can take you away from your house. It can take you and your family. It can take you, your friends, load on trucks, take them to uh, Gulags, you know, Siberia, or torture you to death. And nothing happens and nobody's responsible for it. So that's what the communism today is. And that's what communism was. Mm-hmm. It's a very scary system, totalitarian system. And even though, you know, it is kind of uh, a mixture, a little, we've tried a mixture in some countries, a mixture of uh, technology and industry and communism, and in some just just pure communism and almost no work at all, no technology and no industry. But the system is kind of the same and treatment of people is the same. You are definitely a slave in those countries, even though, you know, uh, sometimes you would feel that maybe you're okay or you are really extremely proud, like in Nazi Germany, that we can see these parades and, and people believing in these communistic governments or or are being that way. There are also people uh, scary people in these systems that they are uh, love to be this power.
1: So I know you fled Poland in nineteen eighty five. Have you been in the United States for the most part since then?
0: Yes, mostly in in California. Uh, spent eighteen years in Los Angeles and Eighteen years, or um, no, sixteen,
1: seventeen years in in San Francisco. Okay, so so you've you've been in Poland for decades, and you've been in the the California area for decades. All right. What's the biggest difference you notice culturally between people in Poland and people in United States? at, at a general level, because you've spent a long period of time in both. Is there anything? you notice that's interesting or fascinating about the way people operate in, in Poland versus America at a, at a cultural level or at a, at a social level?
0: Well, the system, it's not about people, it's about the system, really. Mm-hmm. So um, when I lived in the system, communistic system in, in Poland, I was not free. I was dependent, I was not independent. So that is really hard to comprehend in America, but I will try to pass it on. When you are not independent, then it means that you are also uh, checked. It means uh, you are told what to do and how to do, and a lot of regulations, a lot of rules around. And also this this uh, thing is that you have to do as others do. So mm-hmm. you're forced to, to be certain way. In America, when I came here, it was very clear that I was left alone. And the first time that when I came here, I realized that I am in the country and I'm responsible for my own life and I can build my own life uh, the way that I want. And And really, nobody really will tell me how to live my life. And I felt I felt uh quiet America and I felt uh I felt for the first time calm because of that and safe. I felt safe. I felt like I can build my life on my own. It was amazing, you know, uh uh, feeling and then when I started working in the gym, the first thing that happened was that I saw somebody was doing the the exercise wrongly, right?
1: What exercise was
0: it? He was doing the pull down and it was- Okay,
1: like lat pull down?
0: Yeah, so I I went uh, to him and I told him that he's doing this exercise incorrect. Mm -hmm. So he said, did I ask you for help? (laughs) He was right, right away, right?
1: Yeah, it sounds it sounds like uh the typical gym Jim uh, bro. By the
0: way, America, right? you like, didn't ask you, don't tell me, right? So I, I welcome just to right America. Away. A never went again to anybody and do it to the person that thing, right? So because you know, I was told all the time. So you, you also learn how to violate that to others, right? So um uh, I became this this Polish government or communist government behaving in America and I got it I got it and then that was my last time that I would approach somebody in the gym and I would try to correct that person
1: yeah I I imagine uh, a a good way to get a feel for the culture and and how people operate in a certain country or, or certain area is to go to the gym and see what people do. And for sure, cause I, I, I was like that. I was like this, uh, especially when I played baseball back in college where, you know, I thought I knew everything about weightlifting. You couldn't tell me shit. And if I didn't ask for your advice, even if you see me doing something wrong where I'm, you know, like trying to deadlift 500 pounds and I'm, destroying my spine because I'm curving my back and someone was like, hey, you're going to hurt yourself. I'd probably tell them to, you know, go fuck off basically because, yeah, it might just be like that, that American independent spirit that makes us think we know everything.
0: Well, you know, not really uh, about that. You know, everything is just about more not telling the other what to do when they Mm -hmm. are not asking you. Yeah,
1: good good point. Yeah, That's it's like if you point,
0: right?
1: Yeah, if you don't ask, like don't tell me.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I learn uh to approach people and talk and first I would say, "Hey, I am a uh, coach here and would you like to show you some other ways to do this exercise? I, I know different ways. Uh, would you like me to show you?" So it's more asking for permission than yeah. than just right away <laughs> tell somebody. So that distinction was very, very clear. Don't uh, tell people what to do unless they ask for. So then I focus in my life on becoming better, becoming inspiration of people, and waiting until you know people uh, ask and uh, <laughs> not search and not go to people and uh, and tell them what to do.
1: If you see someone doing something really wrong. Maybe it's someone you care about, a friend, family member, and they don't ask you, but you really want to tell them something. You want to give them some sort of advice or insight. Is there anything you do to speed up the process of them wanting to ask you, or do you say anything like hint in any way to open that person up so that you can correct them?
0: You have to somehow break in and then break in you have to somehow uh mimic the person and then uh, create a possibility for a question you can go to the person and then say uh, it's your friend yeah so well your friend is not different you shouldn't violate and and bully the friend right you simply go and and ask uh, hey you know i was doing this uh uh, this way and then um somebody showed me a different way would you like to to see it right it, it seems like a little bit maybe better so you you kind of uh mimic the person you show that you were in the same place or you are still in the same place and you have something to say and then you're asking for mm-hmm. permission yeah so in a way uh when i coach in the last 30 years people I'm building the person the way that the person really makes the choices and decisions and and I'm not really telling people what to do but I create the possibility to accept the hard choice for the person so the person builds independently himself or herself from within so it's important that decisions are original done by the person that the person agrees to do the hard choices Mm -hmm. And then that is possibility for sustainability, right, of uh, whatever people do. You remember like a big loser and that it was this losing weight program. And it was always about pushing, pushing, pushing people to extremes so they actually could lose all this weight. But then they gain it back. So why is that so? Because they were forced to do that. Mm -hmm. They were forced to. Uh, lose weight. So when actually they were they were forced, they could do it. But they, when they were uh, outside of that, the force didn't exist. They didn't know what to do. They didn't have the power from from within to continue to sustain. So the only way to deal with it, I see, is that create different mindset, different brain. And in order to create that, the person has to make choices. It means you have to wait. You have to create only possibility for those decisions, the space that the person is okay with the hard choices presented. And the person owns this, like becomes the, the owner of the, of the belief, the owner of the, of the way. And if not, the person goes back. And you can see that uh, when people lose weight and they are, let's say, 160 pounds and lose 40 pounds, they become 120. And if they are forced to do that, if the mind doesn't change, if mind doesn't become this 120 pounds, that after they're losing this weight until 12, 120, the brain is still thinking 160. And it's this way. So it means one thing that the person will return to 160 or even beyond that. Because the lifestyle of that person didn't change. The lifestyle the system believe is 160 and the person has to return to that.
1: Yeah, because you see so many people that make amazing changes with their body, whether it's losing a hundred pounds or kicking an addiction to cigarettes or alcohol, whatever it is. And then a large, percentage of those people eventually go back to the way that they were or maybe even worse before they made the change so maybe they lose 100 pounds and they gain back 120 or they smoke quit smoking 5 cigarettes a day and then they start back and now they're smoking a full pack a day so it, it's like the lifestyle is what you've seen like that that internal mind switch is what you've seen that separates the people that stick to their new habits, as opposed to the ones who fall back into the routine or, or or end up worse than when they started, it's like the mindset switch.
0: During this process of uh, you know losing weight or quitting alcohol or any addiction, a person needs to go through change of a thinking process that is aligned with the one that is becoming. So if you are becoming. Person who doesn't drink, you would need to change your whole believing system and becoming the one that doesn't like alcohol. And you would need to really become the one that doesn't like alcohol or doesn't like overeating when you want to lose weight, right? You kind of uh, cannot be the same person. So uh, the whole philosophy has to be built around during this time of weight loss so sustainability can happen. We don't have philosophy behind if we don't have a certain knowledge behind building what we are doing and what we are doing and if we don't have a spiritual art spirituality behind we will not be able to sustain you 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 can take a person and cut off 40 pounds of fat right mm-hmm. that's extreme and then uh, send the person home uh, what's going to happen right the person will eat the same way as ate before. So in order to really help people, it cannot really create, like you said, about this force, kind of uh, force sometimes for, so, for some time. Like let's say, oh, let's do the startup, you know, seven days we'll do on the juices, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so um, what's going to happen? You know, after seven days, we don't drink the juices and we'll be, oh, no, we'll, we'll uh, drink a little bit juice. Yeah. We'll, we'll learn and uh, we, we'll adapt this to our life. It doesn't work that way, really. It's like we return back to our mm-hmm. way of living. Yeah. How to deal with it, how to change it. Uh, you have to slowly, gracefully uh, change the virtues and ritual of daily life your daily life has to start becoming the way that you want it to be forever. So you want to create that ritual, that daily way of living
2: mm-hmm.
0: that is going to support your life forever. It's like not something you, uh, you cannot live the, the life of a fixer. You fix your problem. And the problem is lifestyle problem. So if you if you fix, let's say, weight loss, you take pills and, and lose weight, then the lifestyle returns. So in order to mm-hmm. really uh, fix something in your life that is a condition and depend on the lifestyle, you really have to change that lifestyle, not by force, but by genuine, graceful, Build up of the virtues around that one. That's one that you want to become.
1: Yeah, and you you are an expert in Olympic weightlifting and movement with the Happy Body program. You've been teaching weightlifting for decades. You're a world record holder, and you're you're a, a champion in Olympic weightlifting. And so, you, it seems like you've mastered those routines and mindsets. But you've been pretty open about struggling with alcohol earlier in your life, having an unhealthy relationship with alcohol when you started lifting. And when I started lifting seriously back in college, I was also a much heavier drinker, probably had a bit of an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. Can you tell the story of how you got introduced to Olympic weightlifting? I, I remember hearing it was it was someone at a bar introduced you to it can can you tell that story and give an overview of of how weightlifting came into your life and that battle of the the new habit with weightlifting and also the the relationship with drinking you had at the time
0: well you know i experienced really bullying extreme bullying when i was in uh, elementary school so i was probably 10 11 12 so experienced a lot of a lot of bullying and bullying on streets when i walk to my school it was not really far maybe 300 yards but these 300 yards were, uh, were were really tough because the gangs were you know i had to pass gangs and uh, boys that didn't go to school anymore bigger and they would sometimes, you know, they wanted money, right? So uh, they would sometimes uh, search us and get money, hit us, and so on, right? It was on a daily basis. Then in school, there were different bullies too. Right? So uh, teachers were bullies, and and uh, students, other students were bullies. So experienced bullying a lot. So when I was thirteen, I uh, I thought that I had to do something about that. So I really Look into weightlifting, but it's a normal like uh, not weightlifting. It was like lifting weights, like bodybuilding kind of.
1: Okay, so not like not like the uh, like Olympic style.
2: No, 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 no. That
0: okay. was not like that. And 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 then I went to high school. Somehow I survived the elementary school. I was fifteen years old, and then I survived this the elementary school, and then I got myself into the best high school in in Stargard in uh, in a city that I lived. Uh, and then uh, that high school was really uh, tough but I was really science oriented math and and physics chemistry so I was able to pass the exams and, and get myself there but when I got myself there the passing again this 300 years now it we became Uh, half a mile around to go to high school. Somehow the boys took me over and uh, were able to drag me away from the school. And then slowly I uh, didn't do my homework and I was not able to sustain the high school. And then that was it. I lost about two months after I lost the high school, and I was really, I was, uh, I quit, and then was not able to. You, you study, dropped out. To, yeah, drop out, and, and drinking heavy, so my drinking began, and and uh, my drinking escalated. Uh, I went to this uh, trade school and was learning how to do the metal work, like a uh, locksmith, building locks, and and it was interesting but then we work three days and then three days was studying studying was very easy for me and then uh the more boys were around that drank so after after we left school we were drinking so then after about 6 8 months i was not able even to sustain that and became alcoholic completely 100% right means didn't go to school didn't work And I started really drinking. Every day when I came out of the house, I was just thinking about how to get money to drink. It's like uh, an addict, right? And every day, uh, somehow we found this alcohol. And every day I had blackouts and sometimes lost two, three days. And it was like that for until I was 18. When I was 18, went to this bar, like uh, not a bar, but kind of a, place when we were, you know, drinking, yeah, It was kind of like a bar. And there was a boy there, Mirek, and he was saying that his mother threw his equipment out of the house. Oh, they were all athletes kind of, you know, uh, lifting weights, bodybuilders, track and field athletes. And somehow we sat together, we alcoholics sat near them and kind of blended because we know each other. So and drinking together <laughs> so um <laughs> yeah he said that his mother threw his equipment out of the house so you know i was an alcoholic as i say well you come to my house and you can train there." okay so next day i woke up right already drank at about 3 p.m because somebody knocking at the window my house was very close to the street so it was very close to the pavement when people could walk and actually could knock on, on the windows. He was knocking. And I opened the window and I said, What are you doing here? And he said, Well, you told me to bring my equipment. I didn't remember this at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, I, I told you to bring the equipment. He had all the bars and weights, plates, everything. I said, It's okay, bring it in. So he placed all this uh bars inside dumbbells and it's just barbels everything what he had and i said okay you can uh do your stuff and i have to take a nap and he said no, no let's get into the the workout a little bit i was very weak and you know mm-hmm. it's already almost three years of drinking and he said no no let's go let's do a little bit and then we go we we'll have a beer when i had a beer I look as a beer. I say, "Yeah, <laughs> beer for yeah. me." Was, somebody is going to pay for my beer, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's the it's the best post workout.
0: Yeah, it nice, was really good a good nice one. Beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he didn't even know that he yeah. did what he did. So yeah. We did a little bit bench, and then we went for a beer. And it kind of day by day it was it was going like that, and slowly was moving that way. That's why here uh idea of the mentor uh, idea of somebody that through the lifestyle is building you different lifestyle is uh uh is important right so day by day and month by month I was getting stronger and then stronger and kind of uh, we drank less and i remember the days it was uh that way and eventually brought us to that i you know, was drinking, but I was not drinking so much. And I was able to train.
1: Was it more that you hated drinking that made you slow down? Or was it that you wanted to continue to progress uh, weightlifting and you knew that if you kept drinking at the same pace, it would hurt your results?
0: No, at this time, it was happening to me. I didn't have any conscious uh, activity about that it was hurting any progress it was just some fact somehow it was happening that I was drinking less because Mirek was drinking certain amount and I was mimicking more him and I like him so it was more mimicking somebody that you like and during this mimicking I was becoming mirek and then slowly he was saving my life without knowing that he was doing that
1: Okay so you you looked up to Mirik and he was drinking less and so right that sparked something inside you to to want to be better and, and and in a sense drink less as well.
0: Yeah and we were you no know, walking through the city and visiting different places cafes and like a normal activity during the day in the evening so I didn't even have opportunity to, to drink somehow more because I was with him. So we are moving around and then other athletes were joining us and and it kind of, I, 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 hang out more with those that uh, had the athletic lifestyle and not that was, that they were alcoholics. I was in a different place physically.
1: I had a friend, Lawrence. He, he passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately, but he he used to work in the building that I worked at, and he was he was jacked like he was cut up. He would close the the highest strength of those forearm grippers like he, his forearms were huge, veiny. Like, and I would always talk to him about diet and working out, and he got me into intermittent fasting and meditation, which are probably the two most influential habits on my mind and body that I've adopted. And it started as this admiration for him because of how he's, he seemed so in tune with his, his diet and, and, and working out and just watching him just like effortlessly close those forearm grippers. I was like, holy shit, like I want to do what this guy does and said, so it sounds like it was something similar with your friend.
0: Right. And, um, you know, when you, like something like that, when you re- actually respond, right, and that the unity you know happens, and then you pick up the ball, right, and you you want to play that that game, and i you know it's like you experience some kind of the same thing, but it's a it's a, like a month passing, right, and you are within and you slowly change it's a kind of micro progression in in action. And you become a different person. And you cannot become a different person like that without somehow going through a journey. And I understand this 12-step program, right, for alcoholics, because it's kind of, a, they had to go from a journey, too. And they have these people to support them on a journey, right? And so they are, they don't want to drink, they are sober, but they need also a journey. A journey of years to to sustain, to be uh, to build the strength to and resist drinking. So you know, for me, it was happening from this suicidal and an almost gone person. uh, Slowly, I was becoming the one that started liking lifting weights and uh, liking hang out with people who had something to say and uh, the people that kind of control life uh, and the life for them was constructive life that they they had things to do and they do the those things and and then they started liking that way and also I was becoming stronger and stronger and stronger, right? So Mm -hmm. that is that eventually led to the place where I was so strong that I started seeing that I could switch to Olympic weightlifting uh, from bodybuilding because mostly we were doing bodybuilding. It was what what we were doing with Mira. And we were doing this for about seven, eight months. After seven and eight months, I didn't drink at all at that point. Almost at all, only drank sometimes. Mm -hmm. Then, something happened, I switched into Olympic weightlifting. I started really going to seeing the team uh, in Szczecin, joining the Olympic weightlifting team. And uh, Mirek was doing still uh, bodybuilding. So I trained with him a little bit. And then Olympic weightlifting, I uh, was shifting towards something that I really was possessed by, which mm-hmm. was Olympic weightlifting. Then I, I somehow love the power—the power of uh, of lifting uh, heavy weights very fast, like what Olympic weightlifting is—and and, and I was drawn by it because of Olympic weightlifting became such a huge challenge. Then, the whole of my lifestyle was arranged by it. So, for example, if my friends were going to a party. And I would go with them, but in the morning I couldn't train the way that I wanted to train. Then I uh, didn't go anymore to the party. So I started learning how to how to live according to Olympic weightlifting. Yeah, because it was it was so challenging and it was so disciplined and it was so uh, there was no way that you could progress unless you lived certain way and. And I started really uh, living that way and living that, you know, really high discipline way. And I would do actually anything to, to progress, to, be, to, to get better and, and to break, you know, records and so on. So <laughs> it, it's interesting mindset uh, of a person that the person will do anything to get better within that. And it's actually a good thing. So when I um uh, met Anila, my wife at certain point we discussed the values that we have in life what is first what is second so yeah. i told her well the bar is the first first thing in, in my life so I you told you told your
1: uh, <laughs> you were dating at the time i assume you yes she yeah. was your it's girlfriend. just like
0: you, you know two, two three months right you t- so, you told uh, your you
1: told your girlfriend at the time this is the bar and this is you.
0: No, 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 not yeah. <laughs> no, uh the bar, my yes. mother, my oh, friend wow. <laughs> and you.
1: Wow. So how how did uh what an
0: asking, right? It was really terrible. Man.
1: I like your style.
0: How, how you, did, uh, how, I was how did she react you. to that?
1: How did she react <laughs> to that?
0: She was very graceful, and she knew that I was not really that person. Really, physically, in life at that time, I was shifted later on in life. And she used she used to say, "I like the I. I always saw the person that you are becoming. I you knew that you, you had that yeah. one in you, right? Yeah. So uh, you are becoming that person now.
1: Yeah, it's fu- it's funny because I I never I never had that same conversation with my, my girlfriend or my family, but I, I do have things like a, like a prioritized list that I need to do or, or, and I want to do like, like meditation, like lifting, eating relatively well. There are things that make me the person I am. And if I stop doing those things, my girlfriend's not going to like me anymore, or my family's not going to like me anymore. So it's like, you have to have those things that you protect with your mind and body. And the people that love you hopefully understand that the reason why your relationship is working, or the reason why you treat people so well is because you treat yourself well. And it sounds cliche, but like, I'm if I if I go a week or two without meditating or if I don't work out for a couple of weeks, like I genuinely do feel like a shittier person. I feel like I treat people worse than I would if I otherwise stayed with those routines that I know are good for me.
0: So you can see that meditation is priority, right? So um, mm-hmm. there's something that you will not compromise, it means, right? There's no way- Yeah, 100%. That- that yeah, you will no, compromise, you will not do it, right? So
1: no ma- yeah, yeah, no matter who's in my life, relationship, family, friends, meditation in the morning hundred percent helps me operate at a fundamental level as a better, more fulfilled person. so that, that's something I'm not willing to compromise.
0: So in a way, you don't have to tell people that meditation is above your mother, right? <laughs> but yeah, the mom, that, the that mother, would, it would be funny. Mother <laughs> will tell you slow meditation. <laughs> you will simply not stop. So in a way, it mm-hmm. is right. So I was uh, yeah when my mother was frying meat and and I was eating and and during the uh, lifting, I uh, sometimes I throw out and acid would come up and and my coach said you know tell your mom to put your meat into the soup instead of fried, and you just eat that piece. Well, yeah. my mother was very proud. So <laughs> when I went to my mom and said, Mom, you know, uh, when I trained, this happens, so uh, could you put my piece of uh, meat in into the soup? She said, you don't like my cooking? I said, no, no, I like your cooking. No, I always like yeah. your cooking. But you know, it's just uh, this thing. If you don't like my cooking, you out, right? You, you go to a restaurant. <laughs> I said, okay, mom. Yeah. You want me to go and eat in restaurants? I will. So you see, this is the response that I would not compromise. I would not simply eat, keep eating that way. I had to do it because Olympic weightlifting would not get better. So very clear. Mm-hmm. It is not that you know Olympic weightlifting is more important than mother, but in in this situation it's like in this situation, yes in that situation you I would not give my Olympic weightlifting because my mother is telling me that right, so no way, so I was eating outside of the house for three weeks, and my mother was hanging around really and cooking and and I saw her struggle and really <laughs> and then um. After three weeks, my mother uh, was in the kitchen, and she said, "Urek, yeah, uh, is the uh, uh, the nickname for Jersey." So she she said, "Okay, you can come home, and I will put your meat into the, the soup." I said, "Well, thank you, mom." So I came back and I was I was eating yeah. meat that it was in the soup. But it you know it took my mom three weeks to um, to adapt to that. And you know we we have our ways, emotional ways of being proud of certain things. My mother was very proud of her and she was good in things. So and she was also proud. So and she was a mother that uh, You know, kind of a king of the of
1: the (laughs) To go back to alcohol for a bit, you you seem like you have a much more healthy relationship with alcohol and fitness together. You you talk about the one drink rule. You very social guy. Do you have any tips or any insights on how to work out without letting the alcohol compromise what you're? doing on, on a day-to-day basis because there are a lot of people listening to this, like myself in their 20s or 30s, that are in the prime of their going out years. The pandemic definitely put a cap on that, but there there are a lot of people that are in the prime of their their social years. Do you have any advice for people that want to work out, but also want to drink in a way that won't compromise the the benefits that they see from lifting? or uh, running whatever it is that they do?
0: I coach a lot of students how to drink, actually. (laughs) Really? uh, Oh, yeah.
1: I would have taken that class in college, how how to drink 101 with Jersey Gregory. Yeah,
0: I I, I coach a lot of students uh, from different universities (laughs) on Zoom and in person. And drinking, you know, they simply communicated to me over and over, we will drink, right? And you helped me how to uh, how to make it happen so it is conscious, right? It is not unconscious. So it is plan and how. Because over and over, they told me the same thing. They tell me the same thing. I drink three four times a day, uh, a week, right? And when I drink, I drink five or you know, six drinks. I that oh, holy... Holy moly, <laughs> That's really drinking, right? My approach was always because, you know, the people that I work with, they want, want to also stay certain body type. So that is like Olympic weightlifting, is that uh, follows certain consequences and follows a certain uh, rules. So consequences don't happen. So consequences are like you gain weight if you eat too much, but if you drink, That's a lot of food. (laughs) So how to to deal with it? So first I would need to uh, expose drinking and uh, drinking as calories as food. Uh, And then how much of it? Teaching now, somebody that is a student at the college to actually be conscious about drinking. It's a masterpiece.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it really is. It really is. It's a
0: very interesting uh, way to approach. The first thing that I would need to set up is that micro progression toward drinking less and less over time. So I said, okay, let's get this week. And then how many drinks you uh, drinking during the day when you go to the party? Five. I'll say okay. So, would four drinks be okay? Yeah. When you say no, four or five. I'll say, okay. So I said okay. So you will go during this week, and you will be drinking four, and not not five. Four, and you count them and try to drink that. You know, in time. So let's say how many, how much time you spend at the party. Let's say four hours. So one hour for one drink. If you have a beer, they a lot of them drink beer. A lot of them drink uh, this new vodka in a bottle. Forgot the name of it.
1: Oh, uh, like a uh, hard uh, hard seltzer, White Claw.
0: Yeah, yeah, White Claw. All right, White Claw. Yeah. I've Claws, never really yep. heard about this, right? So, yep,
1: dude. It's it's easy to drink like seven or eight of those without even thinking about it because they taste so good.
0: Exactly. So my yeah. uh, client says, you know, she says. I drink White Claw. I said, what is it? i have never heard of White Claw? I said, no. <laughs> what is White Claw? Uh, this drink I will bring you. So she brought me next time this drink, right? The bottle. And I opened smell smelled it. It was horrible. It was just smelly and horrible, right? And then I tasted it horrible. So I said, okay, I will teach you how to make a drink. Mm-hmm. So we went to the kitchen and... I took the Belvedere vodka uh, oh, yeah. pour in and squeezed whole lemon in, added a little bit uh sparkling water. It's like a gimlet but without we without the, the juices on the mm-hmm. lime or lemon.
1: Like a vodka soda almost.
0: Yeah, but very strong uh, uh, lemon. So it's like a foggy. I call it foggy. Mm-hmm. And it's okay, drink it. So she tasted, wow, it's really good. I say, yeah, it is good. It's a lot better than the other one. (laughs) So I said, well, when you go to the party, you take the bottle of vodka and go to the party and then make people drinks, right? First, you can drink a little bit better, right? The better alcohol. But if you want to drink these bottles, you have to pace yourself. First is a beer or white claw, whatever you drink, you have to pace yourself. First thing, so you within one hour you have one drink. You have four
1: hours. You can't get your second drink until the first hour is up.
0: I- exactly. So okay. when I go, I you know lowered my drinking to one drink only when I am in uh, anywhere where I wherever I go, unless uh, I am in you know wedding or something that uh, maybe I will have two, but one drink. I go to. Let's say to a dinner and I order this one green tea, sparkling water, and my drink. So when I drink off, I will pour spark sparkling water in. So my glass, the, the my, my glass stays always full. Mm-hmm. It dilutes alcohol. I feel good. I feel, you know, you know, kind of happy, but not overwhelming to other people. So I will not say mean people to <laughs> mean things to people. <laughs> so, yep. so so I, I'm good.
1: <laughs> mean things to people that you won't remember.
0: Yeah, or I next day I would have to apologize for uh, uh, in certain way. Yeah. So when I stay with one drink, I'm really good. Now prevents me from being an asshole after one drink when I. When I drink free, I'm a, I'm an asshole becoming ready. I have to say something mean. <laughs> so yeah. no, no free drinks for me. One, but then when I uh, you know replace, a uh, dilute all that constantly, the drink that the drink becomes uh, weaker and weaker. Eventually, sparkling water. But the the message is to the waiter is that the glass is full. Uh, so
1: so he won't ask you or she won't ask you.
0: Yeah, you want another one, right? Get on yeah. because, you know, uh, it's full. So that is a, a technique in during the dinners and, you know, uh, use. But coming back to to our students, then I teach them how to do the four and then for a week or two. And then uh, they are comfortable with the four. They come back and say, how was four? Well, it was good. No difference, right? So then... We go with the three, and we go with the two. Eventually, it comes to the point that it becomes one drink, and they are able to drink one drink and spend three hours on that one drink, and be okay with it. Yeah, it takes time, but the the, the lowering that that down and slowly this building micro progression to drink less, watch it, observe it, adapt to it, accumulate certain way of dealing with it, it's it starts working really well.
1: Yeah, it it's it's funny because in school back in college we would make fun of people who only had one or two drinks and they felt it, we call them a two beer queer. Like you're a two beer queer. You, you can get
2: you, <laughs> oh, you, you yeah, can get, yeah, of course.
1: You can get drunk off of two beers. And now that I'm drinking much less and much less frequently, I like being able to feel a buzz off of a vodka or two vodkas because I'm like, I I feel satisfied more than I'm drinking less and and still feeling it. And, uh, something, something I would do towards the end of my college baseball career, when I, when I knew we had something, whether it was a game or practice next day or, or a couple of days, and I wanted to feel good is I would switch off vodka sodas with just a soda because I wanted to have something in my hands and I wanted it to look like a vodka soda. I didn't want people to know I wasn't drinking, but I still wanted to have something in my hand and sip on it. So maybe I would have four drinks that night over a few hours, but only two of them would have vodka in it. So I go vodka soda, just soda, vodka soda, just soda, uh, like club soda. So it was no calories or anything like that. And and I always felt great and didn't really feel anything noticeable the next day. When I woke up, I was always like, Oh, like I I had a good time and and I feel good now. And I kind of stuck to that and still do sometimes.
0: You know, I, I tell also, you know, people that they have to move around so you cannot be watched. Yeah. So if you uh move around people lose the capability of watching you and knowing uh how much you drink and so on. Yeah. Get, it's very personal for society that you do the same as they. So uh it's a it's a it's in a way a cultural at certain point uh, an article about cultural obesity that you know when you are about obese people you have to behave like that you have to eat <laughs> as much yeah. as they eat, right so yeah. uh, there's a cultural way of corrupting others to be the the same as the culture is
1: yeah yeah it's it's a weird it's a weird thing it's like if someone's buying shots at a bar everyone has to do the shot or else you're the the outcast or, or something's wrong with That's you in, in some I'm yeah. watching
0: you right
1: yeah, it's like this, and but then, as the night goes on, people get more and more drunk, and then their their perception goes down they may think that you're bombed, and they don't even realize it that you're sober, and so the, the I feel like there is a point where people stop noticing, but at the beginning, when everyone's kind of getting there and you're not drinking as much, you're definitely the the outcast. It's like, what's wrong with this person? They're not getting super fucked up.
0: The way to deal with it is like with the happy body and controlling because the happy body's self control and control the food is not a diet, but controlling, let's say you're 120 pounds, you stay 120 pounds no matter what, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you you control that by the way. And now you can have different strategies, different plans. You know, we have a plan, but you have a lot of strategies how to stay this 120 forever. But drinking is the part of it that Usually, how students engage with me. They want mm. to control the body weight and they want to drink. So so here is uh, one of the ways you know I tell them you know if, if you want to go and drink, right, then you have about three choices, you know you you will drink one drink and eat something and then eat a little bit something less so you know how calories work really around that Mm. or you have two drinks and eat very little or you have three drinks and you don't eat anything right yeah you are just drinking that and then Mm. you have three drinks after when we come back with people that they drink six or seven and bring them to three right and then then once once you bring people to free drinks uh, uh, in the evening, then bring them to the free scenarios. You can have a drink and a dinner, right? Good, nice dinner. You can have two drinks, eat very little, or you just have free beers during the night and that's all you got. Now, mm-hmm. how you're conscious about that and how you move around and how you watch other people because they are kind of watching you but they are not watching and then a certain point they are just drinking and they don't care whether you drink or not Mm -hmm. and you're right there is a certain point that they are watching but usually uh you know parties are the way that people are moving around so i always uh tell my students move around, (laughs) you move around, you you talk to a lot of people, a little bit here, a little bit there, so people don't see you. And once they, it's like you would watch a soccer game and you would watch one player, right? When you watch one player, then you really see that player and what that player is doing. So, you know, in in a way uh, you could uh, also, uh, watch people that way you 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 can focus on one and just uh, you know like a writer learn about somebody and be interested about this one or that one or that one so you have something to do the more conscious we are the better it is as soon as you lose your conscious uh way why you are there you don't have a plan you don't have any strategy then you become unconscious and you know everything goes
1: so you mentioned using micro progressions with your students for drinking. And I know that micro progressions are a huge part of the happy body program. Could you explain to people that may not be familiar with it? What is the happy body program and how does it combine micro progressions and movement to allow people to, to move and, and live better? What, what is the happy body?
0: So the happy body was created to give uh, people complete independence and control over exercise diet uh, or eating uh, meditation so a whole lifestyle so uh, the purpose was very uh, clear about that so when you when you take it you will get that you will learn the exercises independently these are your exercises and you will do them forever but Okay, then you will understand also that these exercises have to give you flexibility, strength and posture and uh, losing weight and controlling the body weight and and being lean. Well, usually people uh, want all those things. And um, the whole system provides this for you. It gives you a completely independent way from anybody else to create that. I really liked the idea that somebody buy my book, somebody that lives somewhere and is alone in the room and doesn't like his uh, or her way of living and then buys the happy body book and creates this better way of living for himself, herself. And nobody knows about it. So that was my, I was inspired by that way. I was And when I was driving through San Francisco, near San Francisco, so all these houses up there on hills, and I was just thinking, imagine that I was talking to Anila that somebody will buy the book and will create this lifestyle independently from anybody else, right? And we'll have whole transparency how to exercise, how to eat, to control the weight. How to lose weight, how to gain weight, how to gain muscle, how to uh, correct the posture, and all of it can happen without anybody else. Well, that's became the happy body. So the, the happy body has these 18 exercises, the physical that really uh, corrects everything what physically we would like to have to live a better life. So helps you flexibility, strength, speed better posture, and gain muscle. As you know, that uh, gain muscle is very important when we age because aging is uh, is really muscle loss. So uh, to have a program that would help people to actually gain muscle is crucial in life. That's why no running marathons and uh, no uh, machines and doing endurance training when you get older because that's how we actually lose muscle. The happy body is this skill of uh, living a better life overall with everything you could think about. It's, it's even philosophy. We are building now better philosophy, better way of thinking, writing books and dialogues and poems. And Because as you know, you could have a great plan, great idea. But if you cannot deliver the idea for yourself, right, it's not going to be or work, right?
1: So so it's a progression of 18 different movements?
0: Well, the the micro progression is, micro progression is built, let's say, within the flexibility. Let's mm-hmm. say you can squat only to the 20 inches, right mm-hmm. box or a chair, and you can only squat without leaning forward and raising your heels off the ground. And your flexibility is really only for that. If you want to squat squat deeper, you will compromise, okay? You start with 20 inches. Now, you start with 20 inches and then you start start working every day because you do the happy body every day. And then after a week or two, you start to be very comfortable with the 20 inches. Give yourself enough time to be comfortable and to be flexible, you are. So then you can drop to 19 inches or 19 and a half or 19 and three quarters. Now, it depends whether you have pains or not. A lot of people have a lot of pains in, in hips, knees, and ankles and spine. So let's say you are, you're, so it depends who you are and then how you adapt to that, right? So microprogression progression will work for you in a different way. Let's say you have a lot of pain in your hip and then you squat to that when the interest is tolerable, you're okay
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you keep doing this for three weeks, it's still there. So you keep working with this 20 inch. And then after five weeks, it's gone, right? You don't have pain. It's not, it's not there. It's, uh, the body adapted to that. So then you drop to 19 inches. Now you have pain back and you have a lot of them. So that's not good. You go back to 20. You, uh, you come back to that place, no pain. And then you drop to 19 and three quarters. So micro progression now works for you that way. You adapt this this micro change that actually your body could adapt. So now okay. you are doing 19 and three quarters, and you do it for three four weeks, and then you adapt it to that. Then you have 19 and a half, and you keep doing that until eventually you come to the full squad, but capability.
1: These movements build strength and flexibility as you're progressing, as you're going through the micro,
0: Yeah, you're lifting weights too during the same time. So you are building flexibility or building strength. The same thing is with the bending down. When you bend down, well, a lot of people are stiff, as you know, and they cannot touch the ground.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: If you cannot touch the ground and you're, let's say, 12 inches off the ground, then you put the box there, And then when you do certain exercises, you only go to that level. So you don't pass that level because if you pass that level and your flexibility is not ready for it, you will compromise or you hurt yourself. So now you have to build this micro progressive system that adapts your body to the challenge, but the challenge has to be micro each time and you have to give yourself enough time for the body to adapt to that level.
1: And so this is something you do every day.
0: And you do it every day, right.
1: About how long does it take to go through all 18 movements?
0: 30 minutes.
1: 30 minutes.
0: Yeah, you imagine now you do 30 minutes, 18 exercises that cover any possible move of the body and develops mobility in every joint, make muscle stronger, make muscle bigger. And that's the amazing thing right? <laughs> because that's what we want,
1: right? It, it, so if someone if someone came to you and said, I, I want to do the full happy body routine in the morning, but for whatever reason, they only had maybe 10, 15 minutes, somewhere between five and 15 minutes to get in a movement routine in the morning, what what would you say to someone who came to you that maybe they drop their kids off at school or get it ready, all these things where they only have a short period of time in the morning. Is there is there a group of exercises you would recommend within it? Or would you, yeah, what, what would you say to that person?
0: Well, you know, you do, you know, at the beginning, 18 exercises, but you re- repeat twice. Mm-hmm. And three times if you're really good. So if let's say it takes you 10 minutes to go through all the exercises. Right. And you do three times that. So you can do only one round through and then be OK with that. Also, I tell people never rush. So never because the training is very it's a mindful training. It's mm-hmm. developed singularity of the brain is stress release, follow certain breathing patterns. So mindfulness is a big part of it. So the happy body is is a way of doing. It's almost like uh, you would meditate throughout the whole thirty minutes. But if you have ten minutes, let's say, so I tell people just go until the same way as you would do thirty minutes. But at the ten minutes, you stop. And how much you've done, you've done, and then you that day is uh, uh, done for you. But never try to do more in short periods of time, because then you will create anxiety that you will rush and it's simply not good for the body and not good for the mind.
1: Yeah. My first introduction to you, I I believe it was, it it might've been an Instagram post from Tim Ferriss, where he had shared a quote from you. He, he, He shared a quote, I believe it was from his interview with you a couple of years ago. And you had said hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life, and the happy body along with a lot of the things you do physically and Olympic weightlifting, also the the restrictions with drinking and teaching college students how to live better. It seems like it falls in line with the the hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. Is there a choice that stands out recently that was a harder choice for you to make but in the long term, it made your life easier. Something that stands out recently that would kind of fall in line with that mantra.
0: Well, I pick up hard choices all the time, right? <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> I know there are a lot, Any uh, anything that stands out, like a specific example of a, a hard choice that maybe you do every day or something that makes your life easier over the long term.
0: I will, I will tell you my story about poetry then. Yeah. So... We hired a, a, a writer in about 91 or 92 to write the Happy Buddy book. And the writer spent about half a year, I think, maybe more, and gave us kind of a rough draft. And it was horrible. It was really horrible <laughs> for yeah. us. I knew I said, no, it's, that, that's really bad, right? Yeah. You know? But okay, we, we hired another one. It's all like ghostwriting, right? Kind of yeah. And another wrote and it was horrible too. So I said, you know what, we have to learn how to write. And we have to probably write it. Nobody's going to write that book for us. Then I applied to Vermont College in uh 95. And I sent in creative writing, but in poetry. And it looks like my way of writing was poetry and it's uh I go back to Sweden when I left Poland I was 85 in in Sweden and because of Jerzy Popiuszko and this unconditional love and becoming really a good person good energy you know when I was in Sweden and there was a lot of depression and a lot of fight for being united with other families so a lot of Poles were on hunger strikes and uh, in front of the uh, Polish embassy in Stockholm. And it was really hard uh, everywhere. And and, and I uh, tried to help people and talk to them and, and start meeting people. And, and whatever I was doing help, was helping. And there was this psychologist that, Wanda Said, I helped too. And then she said, You know, it would be good if I opened the in Stockholm, the clinic, and then you will uh, do what you do because you're doing something that is helping people. And I don't know what what is it and how it is. So maybe I can learn that. But they said, "Well, I'm going to U.S. I'm not going to stay in Stockholm." Sorry. And then she said, "Then you have to write." I said, "Why? Why to write?" I said, "Well, because you have something to say, and then you have to write it." But I said, I've never written anything. And said, well, you go home and you write. So when I went home and I stared into a blank page, eventually I, <laughs> I started writing on it. And whatever really on that page became, it became a poem. So I didn't know how to write normal sentences. My writing was uh, it was form itself. My messages form itself as a poem. So that was the beginning of my, my poetry. So we are coming to 95 and and I'm sending my 10 poems to uh, Vermont and I was rejected. Then I called next day and I uh, talked to somebody and a person from admission uh, said that I asked to talk to somebody that rejected my poetry. And she said...
1: You called the admissions office to yeah, ask, and to then ask then, what yeah, you rejected?
0: I to talk to somebody. And she said, that cannot be done. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I said, oh, okay, I w- I will explain myself. And, you know, uh, that I I want to work on my writing and I want to improve it. And I want to know how to improve it because next year I'm going to Reapply, and then uh, following, yeah, I will do the same thing until you accept me. But I have to know how to improve myself. I just need guidelines. Somehow she understood that. Next day, Dean called me, <laughs> and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I talked, and it was very helpful. He helped me, Roger Wingarden helped me to to get together with some people in L.A. that could help me with my process. I was going through seeing different people and eventually I met Peter. And then when I met Peter, this Zen master and and, and a teacher of uh, a poet and so he was a Zen master and a poet, came to Peter and Peter was running at that time workshops in LA. Uh, poetry workshops, and nobody really was doing this, uh, but Peter was doing this. Uh, I also joined Beyond Baroque, uh, the poetry group in L.A., and I came to Peter with my hundred poems, and I had hundred poems, right?
1: This is like your life's work at this point. Yeah, it
0: was 10 years, right? Because it's 85, now it's 95. Yeah. So, but I was proud of it a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I uh, gave Peter and Peter look at the first page about one second, in the middle, maybe a second, in the uh, last, maybe a second. And he threw everything to the ground. This is all garbage. So
1: he looked at it for three seconds. 10 years of what you had written and he said this is this is garbage.
0: It's all garbage. And it was shocking for me because you know like uh and he was not talking. He was just looking at me, my reaction. And I was thinking and I was silence. But I was lucky because at the same time a week ago a coach from a Colorado University they sent a Paul Walter to me, and with a letter, and he came to me well, I coached at the UCLA weightlifting team. I had mm-hmm. a team there, and then he came to me with a letter, and I read the letter, and then uh, he was asking me to take him over uh, with Olympic weightlifting, help him uh, with building more power. So I said, "Okay, could you do this, do the snats? I want to see where you are." And then he did one snatch. I said, "Okay, that's enough." And he said, "I can do more." No, no, that's enough. So you see, I needed only one second. Yeah, one second. I knew what is his technique. I knew how he was trained. I knew what what needs to be done, and so on and so on. I just needed one second, one move, and it was enough for me. So I got it right. Peter kind of uh, saw that I'm really okay with it, right? He said, okay, it's going to be like that. In five years, oh, maybe you will write uh, some sentences. In 10 years, you will maybe write a poem. In 15 years, uh, you will know about writing. In 20, maybe you will be a poet. Do you want to start? So he gave me 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. I said, sure, you know, in 20 years, I want to know if I'm a poet.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: So, I am on a journey for 20 years with Peter, right? It started in 95, but 96, I was accepted to Vermont. And in 98, I graduated with MFA in creative writing and Anila followed the same pattern with uh, what I was doing. And then in 85, 95, so 2015 was 20 years. So I Published three books of poetry and uh, wrote all the time through. Uh, Also, started with Peter for 20 years. Uh, That's kind of a micro progression and building something that you're becoming something, becoming this, this, you're becoming poetry, right? You, that's your easy, easy choice, kind of easy life because you're becoming that, that thing. And it takes time, takes uh, a lot of years to to become. Today, I opened a book of poetry, somebody's poetry, and it takes me a second, right, to look at it. I I can read two or three words. It's just amazing. And I feel it. Or I don't feel it like right away. I know it. Can you share? No, you cannot share that. You, nobody can know. So yeah. I always tell people: you can only see backward. You can see backward what is wrong with the technique, but not forward. You can only look backward at yeah. life, and, and and correct something what you know how to correct, but you never know how to correct forward.
1: So this guy Peter, who's an expert in poetry was able to look at your work in a few seconds and see everything about it. And then you did the same thing to the kid who sent you the video from Colorado University. You could, you could see his snatch form. And in a few seconds, your expertise in weightlifting allowed you to see everything about him, like how he trained, what he needed to work on, things like that.
0: Jack is just the position. Jack mm-hmm. me with mm-hmm. something, so I well, I started working on that lifter, right, and spend years on his training and then building micro progression and building him as a better lifter. But micro progression is uh, is extremely important here because if you want to go a little bit faster than you can, you will break. So and you will never achieve really what you need to achieve so you have to have sustainability and you have to have hard choice in a way that all the time you make it better a little bit so you have to somehow progress but you cannot progress too fast there was this russian coach that said i need 10 years to make a national champion if i don't have 10 years i will not i will never make one Mm-hmm. Because I will break that one before. So it takes time and that in during this time you you have to have these micro uh, changes that contribute to the constant adaptations and, and growth of something, like you know, growing mm-hmm. money, right? <laughs> yeah. You invest money and you uh, for retirement and it takes 30, 40 years. And then you have it when you retire. It's a a micro-progressive system. But we are not teaching this micro-progressive system. We are not really doing that. And then uh, it's really hard to, at the beginning, to give time and effort. Because if you want to make something better than ever, right before, it will be effort. And it will be a hard choice always, and that always changes. So when we knew that two plus one is three, but we didn't know that two plus two is four, it took from teachers and others time to teach us that two plus two is four, so we could figure this out on on our own. So it's it's a and uh, it's a constant hard choices in mathematics to know more and another step. And more and more and more. And it ends sometimes, it only ends when we end. But if we don't end, we go to MIT or we go to university and we study mathematics and something else, and we go to computer science and then uh, we write programs and we are constantly evolving. In a way, it's a combination of the easy life that it be- is becoming but the hard
1: choice is always there. Yeah. I wanted to jump off of of poetry a little bit and and dive into the the connection uh, between poetry and weightlifting because you've managed to make money and make a living in two areas that are notoriously hard to do that, in, in fitness and also in poetry. What advice would you give to a young person who wanted to make a living in the fitness industry, make a living in, in the cre- a creative industry, like like poetry or possibly both? What advice would you have to a young person who wanted to make that happen?
0: I think that you have to prioritize first, you know, which one is kind of a, a way of living, right? For me, way of living became, you know, weightlifting and building the happy body. It was uh, that. Poetry became the uh, supportive another career, but supportive to that. So, uh, you have to, if you're an artist, right? If you're an artist, then you will be the artist. The art will drive your way of living. And then you need, we need, I think that we need the two things that we should always pursue. One is this art. Thing and the other one is the science. So, the science is it can be, you know, uh, any knowledge that is needed to understand life to comprehend what we are. That's kind of a philosophy and science. But physically, we are physically and we are physically to, to experience the world. Yeah. We are physically experiencing the world through our feelings and through our attitudes in life. And that's where art is needed. That's where, and usually how we make our choices and decisions, we make them because of our feelings and not because our thinking, our Mm -hmm. mental powers, right? We, we feel strongly about something and that drives our choices. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it is really our feelings are, you know, not good feelings. And because of that, we are driven to alcohol, we are driven to to addictions and and you know we cannot stop it we, we it's really hard to stop that, right so poetry now is really help can help to develop this space that you can accept hard choices, you can accept what is difficult for you so in a way, to have poetry in your life would help you to. To create this, this space and to agree to life, to agree to what is really in life hard choice, how to recognize it, how to choose it and how to be okay with it and how not to complain. Because complaining is this bad feeling in us that we want to complain <laughs> and we want to blame, right? But because of that, are oh, we always, oh, or oh, it's comfortable to be angry. But these things are the things that, the feelings that are not really virtues of, of our life. So the poetry helps to choose eventually within you to choose the poem, to choose the poem in which, uh, in, in the poem, the person becomes the goodness the chooses something what is a, a hard thing to do. And when you read a poem like that or you write a poem, then you're actually becoming something a little bit version better version of yourself with every poem. So it's kind of a micro progression, but also it is the uh, process of evolving, process of becoming a, a, a better person and and accepting you know hard choices on the way that are necessary for becoming a better person.
1: Yeah. I one more question for you. I want to respect your time because we're coming up on 2 hours. I had a question for you about relationships with uh, a a relationship based question. What does date night look like for you and your wife Anyella because you've been together for over 40 years. I just got into a relationship myself which hopefully is is long lasting and and fulfilling. What does date night look like for you and and Anyella and and what do, do you have anything uh that you would want to say to someone in a beginning of a relationship to to keep that spark and to to keep that mind as the relationship progresses?
0: Well, you know, what happened with us is that we're building the happy body. So we were both involved in constant discussion about it. We both were doing weightlifting and we both were doing the happy body. Uh, and, and you know, and poetry. So we both translated poetry, and translated about ten books of poetry, and both were translating the same poems, shaping the same poems, translating them. And interesting thing, what was happening is that we debated a lot, we fought a lot, fought about yeah. that for the comma to be there or not, for the word, the different word. And our neighbors were thinking that we are really fighting, but we were debating about but very loud about how, whether to use this word, trying yeah. to think how different and so on. But one thing that is we, with us, we are on this constant ger- journey of evolving. So you have, first you have to have something that drives you crazy and you want to make it better all the time, you never stop until you die. So I'm writing a new book now, and then and, and she's writing her book, and then we discuss this, and we're constantly kind of uh, helping each other and, and discussing those facts. During the day, we train together. We go to the gym and do Olympic weightlifting. We do the happy body separately, but we do Olympic weightlifting together. So we go uh, for tea to pizza Coffee together, and we yeah. drive there every day. We would drive because we like to uh, walk, we got, We like cafes, we go to Starbucks or we go to Pete's Coffee and we have our bars, we make our bar and I eat my bar and I drink my drink tea, green tea or coffee. Anila likes coffee, I'm not so much anymore, but we sit outside in the sun <laughs> or not right inside. And then we yeah. have this time together. Uh, constantly with ourselves. But during this time, and uh, during this time, is always the hard choice. We are building the web, we are building the the happy body, we are listening to people, what they want and how they want. So we are constantly involved in making something better. This hard choice is present every day. During the the day we cook together, we drink together, or, you know, uh, Anula cooks and i or you know i make smoothies or she makes uh ginger juice so we have all these things uh, uh kind of uh going and we love dinners so we love invite people for dinners we have certain couples that we like so they come and then we drink uh together we have fun and we eat and and we have a really good life but it's a I think in the relationship, you have to something common in common that you never stop making better together. And I don't know what that could be for people, but mimicking other people is a good thing. So Mm -hmm. when you meet a person and the person dislikes you or not like you, so it's not going to be uh, good for the relationship, right? So, you know, um, mimicking is one of the Stoics way to, to build a good relationship. So that the relationship survives. I think that in order to, for the relationship to survive, you have to pick up something that can live forever, like Olympic weightlifting, the happy body, poetry, art, or something that you do together. Yeah. You do business together, you open set in business together and you run that business. You you have challenges and face these challenges together and help each other from a different perspective. Because you know, she has different perspective than I, but we build, you know, together the wholeness.
1: Yeah. Have a purpose, have something long term that you can work on together as a couple, whether it's business or an activity, have something that you're both invested in that's long-term.
0: Yes, it it takes a lot. It takes, yeah, it takes your life, right, Mm -hmm. for it. But it it, it can be anything, but it has to be, you know, if you like hikes, you go for hikes. If you like, you know, climbing mountains, you know, climb together, you know, and, and make it meaningful, make it, Comfortable, right? That it make it harder and harder. So it's not easy. You know, like uh, if it's easy, if something is easy, it means uh, you know how to do it. And it's boring. You know, if you repeat things in life on the same level of effort, mm-hmm. it's boring. <laughs> it's a, so yes, it's it a, why I yeah. would do something was an easy choice, right? So, yeah. I, it's it's boring. Why would yeah. I really do that, right? So it's yeah. uh, I don't want to do this thing. If I, if you climb the mountain, you climb another one higher and higher and higher, and eventually somebody climbed Mount Everest and asked, was asked, "Why did you climb?" Well, because it was there, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. So what are you going to do now? You cannot climb higher, so well, I have to find something else. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> if you pick up poetry, it will never end because the mountain is higher and higher forever. Olympic weightlifting, higher, higher, forever. Any sport, kind of, if you train yourself to become better in that sport, it never ends.
1: Yeah, the never-ending aspect is what makes something beautiful and and meaningful, and also tough and frustrating. And and I, I definitely alive. Feel that in my own life, yeah, it makes you feel alive. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it.
0: Yeah, in a way, yeah, I, I da- adopted idea I think from Stoics. See that Stoics' purpose of, of life is to to give back. The idea of it is, you know, the nature brought you here, and then okay, and you are here, and nature gave you life, right? And you have that life. Now, what you do with this life? and why you're here is a question. So Stoics believe that you are responsible to the point to become as the the best version of yourself and work constantly to improve yourself until you die. I think that's the that message I really understood. And I live that way of life. I live the life of improving myself, even though I don't know why it happens. I don't know where is it going, but it really doesn't matter because I'm fulfilling my responsibility to the planet, I think, to become the best version. And in this way, the world becomes a better place because I'm becoming a better person. And, you know, uh, if we could adapt, all of us could adapt, adapt that way, imagine what would happen on the planet, right?
1: Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Jersey, so much for your time. I, I really do appreciate it. And I know a lot of people will gain a ton of value from your words and your work. Where is the best place for people to check out The Happy Body and also your, your poetry and other writings?
0: Well, the best way is go to thehappybody.com
2: mm-hmm.
0: and see all the books. I wrote dialogues and I wrote poems and I wrote stories and lectures. And also, you can go to Amazon and check my name there. The books will come out. And uh, if you engage the Happy Body, I meet always uh, every day with people that have questions on Zoom. <laughs> so when people buy the Happy Body book, there is a sign that I um, I'm on Zoom with a certain number. And people can comment. and they can talk to me, they can ask me questions. And uh, uh, I help them to with this micro progressive system and adapting them to to the lifestyle they want to create a better lifestyle for themselves.
1: Thank you again, Jersey. I'll link everything in the, the podcast description as well for people listening, whether it's on the app or YouTube. I'll have everything linked in there. And, and and thank you again, Jersey. I really do appreciate your time.
0: Thank you, Zach. And, you know, I see my wife is uh, pacing outside waiting for me to go to the car. We're going to Pete's Coffee and have our bar and and discuss something. Probably I will be telling her how it was here.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, enjoy, enjoy the coffee and, and I'll talk to you soon, Jersey.
0: All right. Thank you, Zach.
1: Bye.
0: Great to be here.
1: Thank you guys for listening to another episode. You can go to auxoro.supercast.tech today to gain access to two bonus episodes per month of the Aux podcast on topics like Bruce Lee, COVID Lab Leak, Bitcoin, and more. You'll also get full video versions of the Auxoro podcast available nowhere else. Go to auxoro.supercast.tech today to become a premium subscriber. See you next time.